Okay, I will be reading from Leviticus 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him and the breastpiece he put the Urim and the Thummim. And he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bowl of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bowl of the sin offering. And he filled it, and Moses took the blood, and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it, and purified the altar, and poured out the blood at the base of the altar, and consecrated it to make atonement for it. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And he killed it, and Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die. For so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things of the Lord commanded by Moses. Thanks, Grace. All right, y'all. Welcome, welcome. Glad you're here. Let me get my microphone. How's it going back here? <laughs> hey, y'all. Um, my name is John Trapp. Glad you are here. I'm the campus minister for RUF. And uh, this is your first time. We're particularly glad to have you. Um, so, you may be wondering, what is this thing that just was read to me? Um, and why are we reading the book of Leviticus? Um, a couple reasons for that. Um, first off, Leviticus is like the reason that some of the people that I know aren't Christians. They just look at the book of Leviticus and there's all these weird things in it. And they're kind of like, okay, that stuff is like so totally bizarre. And I look around and like Christians aren't abiding by a lot of the things in the book of Leviticus, but then there's like some things that they are doing. And so it's like they're picking and choosing and it's kind of, it kind of seems totally just like random what they decide or kind of like what they like, what they decide is important or not. And, and so I just, I don't buy it. And I, and I actually, I kind of appreciate that take um, because I, I think it, it's at least taking the Bible seriously. Saying it's either, you can't say it's God's word, but then like kind of pick and choose what you like about it and say this is good or not. It's taking the Bible seriously, and, and what we have to deal with is like either the Bible is true or it's not. So the question then is um, if it is true, like what does all of this stuff mean to us? Um, if it is true, how do we understand it? And that's another reason I want us to, um, to study the book of Leviticus is we're studying this. Um, because 
it's actually a really important book in the whole spectrum of the Bible. I said this last week, but it's one of the most often quoted books of the Bible by New Testament writers. So when New Testament authors are writing about the life of Jesus and are um, expounding on what it means to us, they are oftentimes reflecting back on the book of Leviticus as a really important piece of the puzzle for understanding who Jesus is. So if we're going to understand who Jesus is as a group, it's important that we look at books of the Bible like Leviticus and see how is this informing us about the person and claims of Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to do um, until spring break. Uh, if, if you're like, man, I don't really know if I'm up for a Leviticus study, like come after spring break, but we're going to be doing this for the next couple of weeks. Um, and I really appreciate y'all trying this with us. Um, I'm excited to continue doing this. So let me pray for us and then we'll jump right in. Father, um, I ask now that you would meet us where we are. Um, we thank you that even in this story of Leviticus that we see, that you are a God who moves toward his people and who makes a way for us to know you. And I pray that you would be with all of us here now. Um, I know that there's lots of opinions about you represented in this room, and I thank you for that, uh, that, that people feel like they can come here and hear about your word. And I pray now that um, no matter where we are, that you would help us to, to see more of who you are in this story. And I pray and ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, okay, I want to set the stage a little bit of like what's going on in this book. Uh, because it does fit into kind of a history of what's happening with God's people in the Old Testament. And the, the Hebrew translation for the name of the book of Leviticus is Vayikrach. And it's referring, the, the title, that's the title of the, of the book in Hebrew, Vayikrach. And it's literally the first three words of the book of Leviticus. And he called, he referring to God, and God called. And it's the title of the book, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a really apt title, because God is calling to these people that he's now living with. He's just freed them out of Egypt in the book of Exodus. He's commanded them to make a tent where he can dwell with his people. So he's actually going to come and live among them. And then God, the question is, is like, okay, well, if that's true, how do you live with God? How does that work? And Leviticus is going to answer that question. How God dwells with us, how we can have a relationship with him. But I think if we're being honest with ourselves, and one of the things that we say all the time at RUF um, is that this is, this is a place where we really, we really believe, or I believe that the Bible teaches that all of us are sinners. And so if this is like the first religious thing that you've come to, I, I don't think that I'm in any better state than you are. When it comes to like, why should we be, why should I be saved or you be saved? I think all of us, the Bible is really clear saying that all of us equally need God's grace. That all of us need saving. But I think practically lived out a lot of times, we don't want people to see the icky stuff about us that, that's true. Um, 
Okay, so I've been saving to tell you all this story for a long time, and one of the reasons is because it's 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 one of the most embarrassing things that's ever happened to me. But I just I need to get it off my chest. I need to tell it to you, and it kind of has to do with what I'm talking about. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do it for this one. Um, so a lot of some of y'all know our first child that my wife Christy and I had uh, is named Owen, and uh, there's a whole long story about kind of how Owen. Um, came to be, but it begins with him, well, not the very beginning, but like, it, um, <laughs> he was born, he was born two months early when we were in Alabama on vacation, and it was really dangerous and scary, and we didn't really know if he was going to make it, and he was a preemie in like one of those little plastic bubbles, and then they had him life flighted to Houston at Texas Children's Hospital, and he lived there for a month, and we would go visit him. But all of, like, the mean, in the meanwhile, we're just, like, doing life, too. And, it, like, Christmas had come and gone. And my big Christmas present was I love, I love NBA basketball. My wife had gotten me tickets to go see the Thunder play the Rockets. This was, like, when the Thunder were really cool and they had Harden, Westbrook, and Durant. And I'm so pumped to go to this game. And so Chrissy was, sitting, was with Owen, visiting him. And the plan was I was going to uh, I was going to come pick her up at the hospital. Well, I got to the hospital a little bit early, um, and I'm sitting on the phone uh, in a parking lot across from the hospital, in like a hotel parking lot. And I'm talking on the phone to my mom, updating her on how he's doing and all this stuff. And we kind of kind of lose track of time. And I talked to her for for a little bit too long, but. All the meanwhile, I like really had to go to the bathroom. But I was on the phone with my mom. And she's like freaking out that her grandson's in the hospital, and she's really, really scared. And so I just do this, I do the whole thing with her. But then, like, I get off the phone with her, and I look at it. I'm like, oh my gosh, we're going to be late to the game. I don't want to miss this game. I've been so excited going to it. But I really, y'all, I really had to go to the bathroom. TT, we would say in the trap house, was number one. So I, I'm like. Trying to figure out what to do, and please don't judge me, but there's there's a plastic bottle in my car, and it's like, well, this, I'll just do this really quick so that like, I can pull up in front of the hospital like we had planned with Chrissy, and like she'll get in the car, and we'll go to the game, and it'll all be done. And without going into too much detail, I am a clumsy human being. And um, I'll just say that it was bad. And... <laughs> I, now, here's the problem, like, it's, it's, it's so bad that um, I couldn't just, uh, <laughs> it wasn't like it was going to dry, like, anytime quickly. Um, my pants were soaked, and so now I either going to have to drive home and get new pants, and then come back, and I'm going to miss, like, an hour of the game. But then I was like, well, I, like, my car is basically a, a gym, like a locker anyway, so I'm, like, looking around in my car. I'm sure I've got some dirty clothes in there some gym shorts or something I can just throw on I'll wear gym shorts again I can't find anything in the row behind me so then I go into the trunk and I open the trunk and there is a garbage sack filled with all of the maternity clothes that my sister-in-law had given to Chrissy for when she was going to you know be two months pregnant for two more months and have you know be pregnant for two more months and so she's going to bring them back and have maternity clothes so my sister-in-law is six feet tall which is going to come into handy in this story. And I'm like, well, let's see what you got, Julie. And I start digging through her clothes, and I find this really nice-looking pair of khaki pants. And um, I'm like, well, I guess I should try these on. And so I put on the pants, and I don't know if you've ever seen maternity pants, but they have these elastic waistbands 
that instead, instead of like a button right here, it's this elastic waistband that comes up to about, oh, about right here on your chest. So I just like pull them all the way up. You know, it's like really comfortable. <laughs> and I'm looking at them and they like kind of flare at the bottom, but not too bad. And they look like pretty butch, okay? Like it's gonna be, a, I'm like, I think I'm gonna get through this. But then like the only problem is there's this like, snazzy insignia on the butt cheek pocket thing, you know, it was, it was snazzy. And I'm just like, I want to go see the Thunder play, the Rockets, I'm just going to do this, whatever. And I pick her, <laughs> I pick her up, and we were like right in the game, I was like, so you didn't notice anything like different about me? She's like, no, what are you talking about? And I was like, boom! Like, <laughs> she She's like, what is wrong with you? I told her the whole story. But the whole rest of the game, the whole time we're at the game, I'm literally walking around the Toyota Center like this. So I don't want anyone to see the snazzy insignia on my pockets. I'm so afraid that people are going to see like, what I'm really wearing and how ridiculous I really am. And I think that's how all of us walk through life. So afraid. So afraid of people seeing the real us. That's how I walk around life. So afraid that the real me is going to be seen and it's going to be embarrassing and ridiculous and shameful. And the question then is what do we do with this gnawing suspicion that we're not okay on our own? What do we do with this gnawing suspicion that we're not good enough? The answer is what we find in Leviticus chapter 8, that we need a priest. We need a priest. Leviticus 1 through 7, so I preached on Leviticus 1, um, and it was about uh, last week, and it was about the sacrificial system. And then like the next six chapters are also all about the sacrificial system that's going to be put in place so that Israel can have a relationship with God. And then the question is, who's going to be doing these sacrifices? Who's going to be the, the people who are going to stand in the place of God's people and God? And that's where we get the answer in Leviticus 8. It's going to be Aaron and his sons. They're consecrated in this ceremony to become priests. And it's this public event. It happens in front of all of Israel. They're gathered around so that they can see what is going to be done with these men who are consecrated to become priests. And the priest's vocation is made clear, and you see this throughout the rest of the Bible. The job of a priest in the Bible is to represent the people of God to God and to represent God to the people. There's this go-between, the people to God and God to the people. That's their job. And first I want you to see how they represent God to the people. This is, this is I will be much more brief with this point. Um, and because we're going to look more in depth in this in a couple weeks. But I want you to hear, this is a fascinating quote, I think, from a theologian named Vern Poitras. He's a pretty smart dude. He has his PhD in mathematics from Harvard, and then he decided he wanted to be a theologian and seminary professor and has all these like master's degrees from all these, and doctorates from all these crazy places. But um, he writes this, and, and he's describing all the things that, um, that Grace just read about, like what the priest is wearing. All of the things that he's wearing communicates something. The high priest himself, Poitras says, is in fact a kind of replica of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the, the tent where God dwells. So he's saying the priest himself is a replica of the place where God dwells. 
In other words, they're bringing God to the people. And this is how it was communicated to about even the clothing that was worn. His garments correspond to the curtains of the tabernacle. So the things that he's wearing, his garments, would be the same kind of fabric and design and color of what you would see on the, the, the tabernacle curtain that separates the place where God dwells from the rest of us. It says his headband had the inscription, Holy to the Lord, and that would correspond to the most holy place, the representation of heaven in the tabernacle. His hands manipulate the blood that mediates between heaven and earth. His feet remain planted on the earth. His, I don't know if you noticed this when she was reading. His ears and hands and feet are all consecrated with blood, and this would have corresponded to the consecration of all the parts of the tabernacle. Thus, he is presented not only as a human being, sinful like ourselves, but a human being clothed with the majesty of heaven. He represents God to the people, but also he represents the people to God. This was his vocation. And your question might be like, well, do we need priests now? Do we need a go-between? And I would submit to you that our your life is filled with priestly activity, with go-betweens. If you've ever tried to network before, what is networking for that internship that you really want? You go and you meet this person, and this person knows you, but they also know the person who is in charge of the company. And you ask them, hey, can you put in a good word for me with the person who's hiring? What is that? That's priestly activity. You see, you have somebody who knows you who's going and interceding on your behalf and asking for somebody to show you, somebody that they're going in the for to show you favor. It's what letter of recommendations are about. You, and, and think about this. A letter of recommendation. You want somebody who writes a letter of recommendation to really know you, Right? Otherwise, it's awkward. Some, like you want someone to know you and also to have clout. If they only have clout and they don't know you, they're going to write a terrible letter about you. It's going to be super generic. It's not going to be compelling. Or, here's what happens with me a lot of times. If they, if they really know you but they have no clout, like some of y'all ask me to write recommendation letters for you, and I'm happy to do that like if you really want me to. But here's the problem with that. I'm, I have no clout. I have no, like, someone asked me to write a letter of recommendation to, like, this congressman for, like, an internship. I was like, okay. He doesn't care who I am, but sure, I'll do it. But, like, that, the problem is, I have no clout. Like, you want a go-between somebody who both knows you and, and has clout with the decision maker. If you went through Rush, you wanted people speaking up for your consideration. That's a priestly activity. If you like somebody, you start asking for a priest. Not in a, not, not in like a literal priest, but here's what happens. If you like someone, what do you do? You get a go-between. You send out somebody, one of your friends who knows you, and they go check out the landscape with that person's friend. And there's this whole, like, I mean, we laugh like this in middle school, but I know this is what happens in college. Like, I did it too, it's fine, no judgment. Like, but... We send out go-betweens, like, hey, how old am I staying? Like, what are my chances? Am I about to really embarrass myself? Is this a horrible idea? Like, is she into me? What's going on? We want a go-between to tell us what's going on. I, I laughed because I got a text message 
from one of you just an hour ago. This is the most textly, or I'm sorry, priestly text message I've gotten in a while. It's from one of you. Uh, from a sister. I won't say who it is. Hey, Zach is really mad at me. <laughs> Abby's snelling. Hey, Zach is really mad at me because I took his copy of that book that you guys are reading um, for the mission team, and he told me at noon today that he needed to read part one by tonight. Anyway, he made me tell you it was all my fault. <laughs> it's okay, I forgive you. That's priestly activity. Will you please forgive him for me? Or for me? Like, it's really not like It's the go-between that I'm talking about. And here's the thing. The more important the person is, the better go-between you want. The more important the person is, the better the go-between that you want. You want somebody who really knows you and loves you and also has the respect and clout with the one who is the decision-maker. But here's the question. The more important person you want, the better mediator, or the better priest that you want, what if that person is God? That's the question that Israel has to deal with here because God has come and dwelt in their midst and he's called out to them from the tent. And here's the thing with God. God is holy. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. The clearest sensation that a human being has when he experiences the holy is an overpowering, an overwhelming sense of creatureliness. We realize that we're creatures. That is, when we are in the presence of God, we are humbled and become most aware of ourselves as creatures. By the way, this is the opposite of Satan's original temptation, which is, you shall be like gods. It's the opposite of Satan. Satan's temptation is even like, eat of the fruit and you'll be like God. But when we come into the con- in contact with the true Holy One, we realize just how much of a creature we really are. We are not God, and before Him, the Bible tells us everything that's true about us that we try to pull our shirt tail over and hide, everything that's true about us is laid bare before His sight. Oh, there's that. Sorry for calling you out, buddy. I love you. Um, everything that's true is laid bare. But the good news is that God knows this, so He makes a way for Israel to be in a relationship with Him. And so he makes the office of priest. And what does he do with these priests? What does he, how does he make these priests? Well, he gives them these garments. And there's all kinds of stuff. I mean, I, we could geek out for a long time about these garments. I'm not going to spare you. But like, here's one, here's one little detail. This, um, this thing that he was, would have been wearing on his chest and also on his shoulders would have had, it had these, if you read in the book of Exodus, it describes how this ephod and breastplate were supposed to be made. And so we know what it would have looked like. And it would have had these 12 stones. And each of those stones has the na- one of the names of the tribes of Israel on it. So each single stone engraved has a name of the tribe of Israel. So here's what, here's what an Israelite who's gathered around would see. That person is the most religious, holy-looking person I've ever seen. They're wearing all of this like incredible, exotic-looking garments that a, a, a traveling tent community living in the ancient Near East would never have like laid eyes on. And it's this rich, lavish thing. And like, but guess what? Our name is on it. Like that's he's representing me. I'm there. 
I'm identified with him. And they would have looked and seen the most religious person that they've ever seen. But then what's surprising is they would have seen that this person who's the most religious, holy person that they've ever seen has to do tons of sacrifices. Like, and those sacrifices are indicated. The reason they have to do sacrifices is because they're sinners. So the most religious, holy person that they've ever seen is a sinner. And in order for them to come into the presence of God, did you see, I mean, you heard all of like the sacrifices that Grace was reading. And it says in verse 35 that they continue on doing these sacrifices and ceremonies for seven days. And they do it so that they won't die. That's how serious this is. It's how serious it is to come as a sinner into the presence of God. And so these priests, then would, the person would see them and that they, would, they would see that that person is representing me. And what they did in representing the people to God and God to the people is that they would lead God's people in showing them this is how you relate to God. It's why the blood was smeared on their ear and on their hand and on their feet. It's smeared on their ears so that they can learn to hear God's word. Communicating, you need to hear God's word. Your ears need to be purified to hear God's word. On their hands, so that they could do God's work. And on their feet, so that they could walk in righteousness. So that they could serve the people by teaching them, by guiding them, by interceding for them in prayer, and leading them in holy worship. In other words, the priests would be helping Israel have a relationship with God because priests are all about connecting us, giving us a relationship. And the good news for the good news for the Israelites is that it's not up to them as an individual to clean themselves up so that they can have a relationship with God. That there is a mediator who's given to them, who has all of the credentials to go into God's presence. Have you ever had another person's credentials? It can be amazing. So there's this great story my friend Johnson told me. He was the RUF campus minister at the University of Tennessee for years. And uh, he was at, he went to a football game um, at UT Knoxville. And which was, I think at the time, Neyland Stadium was the, was the largest stadium in the country. I don't know if it still is. I don't think it is. Um, so he goes to the game and he's with uh, another RUF campus minister, Les Newsom, who was at Ole Miss at the time. So they go to, they go to this football game and they've been invited to the game by the man who is in charge of all of the fundraising and support raising for the entire University of Tennessee in Knoxville. So this guy, his job is to wine and dine big time donors for the school. And one of the places that this like really happens, you may know, is at the football games. So there's, so Les and John Stones, two RUF campus ministers, are sitting in the box as this man's guest, as he's going around and raising money for the university. And he, he gets really busy, and um, John and Les have been told by him, like, hey, you can, if you want to get down closer to the field at any point, just let me know. And John meant, like, kind of elbowed him and was like, hey, can we get near the field sometime? He's like, hey, tell you what, I'm going to be on swamp the rest of the day. Here, take my card. This will get you anywhere you want to go, and here's my credentials. And he gives, he gives some credentials to Les, the other campus minister, too. He's like, I'll just go and have fun. And so they're like, 
I wonder, <laughs> I guess let's go see if we can get close to the game. So they go and they're about to go down like this escalator and they see like one of those um, like private looking elevators, you know? And uh, Les is like, I wonder if that car would open that elevator. He's like, I don't know, let's go find out. Beep! Opens up just perfectly. So they get on and go to the bottom, and he, they get the bottom floor, which is going like, to let them out on the ground level, and it opens up, and they step out, and like, a security guard stops and is like, excuse me, like, where do you think you're going? Like, they show, they're just like, uh, here, and they show him Scott's credentials, this man's credentials, and he looks and he's like, oh, y'all go ahead. And so now they're like, ground level, like, could we just, could we just go onto the field? And they just walk out on the field, and again, a security guard stops and they show him the credentials, he's like, oh yeah, go on out. So now that it's like watching the game on the sideline, Les looks over at John he's like, I think we need to find out how far we can push this. <laughs> and so as the game continues, halftime comes. And all of the players run, are running into the locker room and he's just like, let's just see. Let's just see what would happen. And they walk, follow the players down the tunnel and they walk into the lock, up to the locker room and all the media is getting stopped there. And they come up to the security guard and they just show them the credentials, like, y'all go on in. And they go in and watch Philip Fulmer give like the halftime speech. And they're just standing, these two random RDF gangsters are just standing there. <laughs> but the way that they get into like the holy of holies of the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, the way that they get into that locker room is because they have the credentials to get in. Not because of what they've done, because it's been given to them. And the good news for us, and the reason why I think it's important for us to understand the book of Leviticus, is that the New Testament says that anyone who's a Christian has a priest. But God is not out of business giving his people a priest to intercede for them. But we have a better priest. Jesus is our high priest. Listen to how Hebrews 7 describes it. And the book of Hebrews is basically a big, long commentary explaining Leviticus for us. If you're confused about Leviticus, read the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews says this, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So the author's like, look, like you have a priest, but if you live for a while, you die. But Jesus holds the priesthood permanently because he lives forever. Consequently, Jesus is able to save the utter, to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus always lives to make intercession for his people, to speak on their behalf to God, to represent his people to God. That's what Jesus does, and he represents God to us. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like, other high, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. See, the beauty of what Jesus says, he's not only the priest, he also becomes a sacrifice. And he offers himself up once and for all. The writer goes on to say, For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints the Son who's been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this. 
the author writes, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. That's the priest that you have who intercedes for you. So what does this mean for us? It means you don't have to intercede for yourself. You can stop. Just stop. You don't have to make yourself right and clean yourself up in God's sight for him to love you. He loves you too much to ask you to do that because he knows that you can't. And so he's given you a priest. He's given you a priest so that you can be in relationship with him. And if that's true, all you need is to put your faith in Jesus and the better priest, not in yourself. And you know what you could actually have then? You could actually have peace. Don't you want that? To have peace and confidence, not in the fact that you've been doing really well lately spiritually. And so God likes you. But you can have peace and confidence that Jesus has done all the work already for you. That your hope is in him. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Only on him. You know what else this means? If Jesus is our priest, it means that your priest gets what it's like to be you. I think this is so important. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Hebrews 4, puts it this way. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is, listen to this, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know what this means? Jesus knows what it's like to be you. He hasn't stayed far removed from you, asking you to figure it out and then maybe eventually come to him. He has entered into time and space. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to have pain. And he is so invested in you having his credentials that he gave himself up for you. And he welcomes you to put your faith in him. He welcomes you to that. It's by his grace that we're saved. You know what that means now? Well, what, was, what that means is what was said about Israel. In the book of Exodus, right before they get this law, they are told that they will be, that Israel will be a kingdom of priests. That each individual Israelite will be like a priest, women and men. And what, what God is telling them in the book of Exodus is like, listen, you're going to represent me to the people. If people want to know what I'm like, they're going to look at Israel. Now listen to what Peter says in the New Testament. It's almost verbatim from Exodus. But you, Christian, Christians, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here's what this means. If you are a Christian, you are a priest. You have a, you have a priest interceding for you, but also you are a priest. And God has put you in this world with a mission. Like it's not just about God is not only concerned with you just like getting your get out of hell free card and then just like chilling until you die. He thinks too much about you to do that. What he's done is he's called you into his mission to rescue people. And so he's made anyone who's a Christian a priest so that they can represent God to this world. And the way that we do that is by interceding for people just like the priest did on behalf of Israel. By seeking for justice for those who are oppressed. By speaking out for people who are marginalized. By loving people who are lonely. By listening to a friend. By inviting somebody to something. By sharing the same love and grace that was given to you with another person. That's priestly activity. That's showing them what God is like. You have that mission. You've been welcomed into that. It's so important. And God welcomes you to participate in that mission with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have called us to be priests, not in order to earn your love, but because of the finished work of our high priest Jesus on our behalf. I pray that you would give us the faith to believe in that and to live accordingly. And we pray and ask all this in his name. Amen.